Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Jordan's last episode of Slate Money. <laughs> That's Jordan <laughs> opening a bottle of Prosecco to celebrate. He finally gets out of this podcasting studio. He's going glug, glug, glug. Here he, is, he is drinking Prosecco because he's a bit déclassé. I'm drinking a fine um, natural wine from New Zealand with a bit of like oh. time on, on the skins. Anna's not drinking at all because no. she doesn't drink. Dan's got some of the Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand too. Uh, well, we, yeah. we, we, have some, we have some fine Lebanese white here. We, we are celebrating the end of an era. This is our 200th episode. We're excited about that. This is the final episode featuring Mr. Jordan Weissman, although I still suspect that somewhere and somehow we're going to drag him back on this show. Yeah, I'll probably be back at some point. Uh, but, you know, if Kathy O'Neill can come back, you can come back. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's it's a lot more. It's a bigger schlep for her. It's it takes you about two minutes to walk over here. It is, and knowing how we do guest booking on this show, <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> like fifteen minutes before the show. Hey, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. can you just like next time fine. when Yanis Varoufakis just gives up halfway through and says, "You know what? I'm not coming on after." <laughs> After all, we'll just say, that's okay. We'll get Jordan on instead. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, and, you know, I've shown up in the middle of episodes anyway, too. So if you just need to brighten one up, I'm happy to reprise that. There are all sorts of things. You know, instead of having, um, you know, the the Slate IT person come (laughs) and do a Slate Plus segment, we can get Jordan to come. Anyway, we are going to answer... Well, no, we are not going to answer anything. Jordan is going to answer your questions. This is going to be a team effort, as usual. But yeah, these questions are directed at me. You guys wrote in with uh, some lovely inquiries, a lot of callbacks to former segments on the show, or throwaway lines of mine (laughs) Um, about New Year's resolutions. And so, yes, this is going to be the last Felix, Sam, and Jordan Weissman, Anna Chemansky show for a while. Yeah. Enjoy it while it lasts. And let's get... Straight Wait, into it. I'm going to pour... So Felix brought this Lebanese wine with... So I said I'm going to bring Prosecco to celebrate. And <laughs> Felix is like, I'll bring wine. <laughs> and then he literally shows up with... This is very sweet. It, this like is Lebanese wine from one of the world's oldest vineyards. It's half drunk, but still, that's that's not a bad thing in wine world. That just means it may have... Uh-oh, wait. Uh, uh-oh. I, I just Breaking broke the cork. cork. Oh. All right, I'm going to go for the. Uh, I'm going to go for the kiwi Sauvignon Blanc as well. <laughs> that doesn't taste like Sauvignon. <laughs> Dan, Dan, find the corkscrew. Find the cor- <laughs> the cork is a disaster. Um, uh, all right. Like, honestly, like we need to we need to work on on Jordan Weissman's cork extraction technique. Let's start with a wonky thing, and then we are going to get into. Stupider yeah. things. Yeah, we're gonna like go McDonald's wonky, stupid, and, wonky, and yeah. swell thing. I wanted. I want to ask you about housing because this is the one thing that we talk about off air more than anything else. It's basically <laughs> your misadventures in the Brooklyn real estate market. So yes. we are going to talk a little bit, a little bit about that 
on air as well. We have some housing related questions. But yeah, let's actually talk about universal basic income because we were going to have Chris Hughes on this show. We were considering it. Um, we invited him to come on the show. Yeah. And then you wrote a review of his book. And then I wrote a review of his book. Which actually I thought was a fairly kind review. Yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't even. a completely excoriating review, but for whatever reason, um Chris Hughes, after reading that review, has gone quite quiet. And um I'm going to assume at this point that he is not coming on this show, which is okay because Annie Lowry has a book coming out on universal basic income. And so when that comes out, we will talk to her instead. That's the book everyone actually was waiting for about universal basic and, income. And I started reading that one. And so we will talk to her in great depth about universal basic income. But so someone in the meantime, yeah. we have a voicemail. Yeah. Um, Dan, can you play us the voicemail? Hi, yeah, this is a question for Jordan. My question is about basic income, basically. If everybody were to get the same amount of money around the country, or at least a, a starter, every every person that doesn't have much money, <laughs> would it be get the same amount of money? Wouldn't that just raise prices for everything? And what would then happen? What's the, well, what would be the point of that? How would that solve anything if all of a sudden rents are going up, food's going up, um, if, if, if that is actually the outcome? So... Yeah, that's the question. What happens? Uh, what's the what's the economics of if everybody actually gets the same amount of money? Um, what happens to the price of goods? Doesn't that just uh, rise? Does UBI cause inflation? Um, so this is like kind of a brain teaser, right? Uh, but I, you know, it shouldn't in any. So it depends, like how you'd implement it, right? Like in theory, if you just if the government government just printed money and handed it out to everybody, you'd expect some amount of inflation, right? It's just like in the end, you're just adding money to the system, and you're going to push up some goods some amount, probably not one for one to the point where you're like, you know, just because food stamps go up doesn't mean the cost of food goes up exactly proportionately. But you'd expect prices to rise to some degree. You would. I mean, normally yeah. fiscal stimulus, that's, yeah, that's somewhat of the point. Yeah, is that exactly. you're now, we have seen that we've actually had a hard time creating inflation. Y- yeah, but, but, I mean, but UBI is not the same as fiscal stimulus. And if you, yeah. if you fund it, with well, tax that, hikes or um, even if you just yeah, borrow the money, then could, that shouldn't necessarily... Well, so if you... Yeah, I mean, so you, you kind of have to think about it. If you do tax hikes, then you're ta- it's just redistribution, in which case there may be actually no increase in the total money supply, right? Like, you're well, not, I mean, I think, so, I think there's... Yeah, but... It, inflation is not entirely a monetary phenomenon. No, so, exactly. That's, so we don't if, know what causes inflation. It's if, sort of if you know what does. <laughs> but let's have. But let's let's, yeah. let's do something like a, a basic, like the intuition here. The yeah. intuition behind the question is: if poor people get more money, then the things that poor people buy, like you know, staple foods and rents on manufactured housing and that kind of thing are likely to rise because there's going to be more money in the poor population. And I think to a certain degree, that's probably true that even if you're paying for it with tax hikes on the rich, you're going to see a certain amount of price rises for the people who are receiving the money. But I think you're also absolutely right that the amount of money they get will vastly out, outweigh the 
effect of inflation. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to ask, where's the equilibrium, right? Like, okay, people get more money, prices rise a little bit, but on net, are they still better off? And you have to remember certain products they're buying aren't going to be based on, like, I think it's helpful to think that these things geographically, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going to be dumping money on poor communities, essentially. Um, and so you'd probably expect something like housing to go up a bit because that's so geographically focused. But food, Food, right? Like that's so. So much of food costs are are nationalized and, yeah, and globalized. So I, you know, you don't yeah, expect the if, effect to be if, even. If, if someone decided to raise prices on their bread or whatever, then someone else would come in with cheaper bread, and you you would still the same forces keeping prices down right now, which is basically Walmart will continue to keep prices down. It's not like Walmart will suddenly take the opportunity to raise raise prices because what Walmart does is always try and keep prices as low as possible. Yeah, so if if we were to kind of summarize this, I'd say if you just do it as redistribution, you might not get any inflation at all nationally, which is typically what we care about, although you might see prices rise on some things in some communities. Um, if you just dump money on the country and borrow it, you'll probably see some inflation, but as we know, uh, it's very hard to create. Yeah, even when we really <laughs> try. Make prices rise and we... That we really try hard and for reasons that people, you know, no one is totally sure of. And even if they do rise, they're not going to rise on everything evenly because thank you, China. Yes. And and, and I have one more inflation question for you. Sure. Which is why is it that we are still so scared of inflation? When we haven't had it for decades. Because that's exactly why yeah. people are so scared. Because of the 70s, right? Like the people in power uh, or decision makers came of age during stagflation and they were scarred by it for 30 something years. And, and so there's just this idea that you you not only have to stick to an inflation, like you not only need a low inflation target, you can't even budge from it because then that will make people doubt your dedication to sticking to this inflation target. Um, sorry, I'm about to start ranting. <laughs> well, yeah, it's also like inflation yeah. is a bit of a psychological issue as well. Yeah. Once you create the idea that there is inflation that can create more inflation also. Yeah. Well, wait, wait, give me an example of that, like in the past 30 years. So. I think one of the concerns is that if you have an inflation spike that you really didn't expect and you have to hike up interest rates really quickly, you're more likely to push the economy into recession as opposed to if you just have kind of managed, expected, slow hikes, you're going to have less of a negative impact on the economy. Yeah, I think that's true. I I will put out a prediction, though. Um, I think that when millennials eventually are actually like monetary policy decision makers, we're going to be very, very lax about inflation because we've like, Never had it. Yeah, well, I mean, can I just say, yeah. as as a Gen Xer, yeah, and a large chunk of the economic decision making apparatus is now my generation. Yeah, like, I don't remember inflation either. No, but there's just enough of you who came up right after, like, who were ha- kind of in their like intellectually formative years in the Reagan era after Volcker had just slayed inflation. And that was seen as sort of the triumph of modern monetary policy. And so that was just sort of the religion, right? Like that, that is sort of, I mean, you could really say like the, the era of economics where monetary economics we were in started um, in the Carter era with stagflation. And then Paul Volcker came and showed how you end stagflation as far as everyone was concerned. And that became the, that, that became our religion. So there's still a lot of uh, Gen Xers who were baptized in that religion, whereas millennials have been sitting around. <laughs> all of us who are interested in economic policy have been sitting around thinking like we have a we have a demand issue. We've we've been dealing with uh, subpar aggregate demand for a decade basically, and we may actually still not be quite back to where we need to be, even though everyone's talking about a tight economy. Okay, so I'm not quite sure how much that had to do with universal basic income, but we will have Annie Lowry on if she will come on. I'm hoping that she will be more 
willing to come on than Chris Hughes was. I, I think she will be. I think yeah. she will be. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, next. next. We, should we get stupid? Okay, let's get yeah. stupid. Um, Jordan. Yeah. We have a combo question here. Yes. Um, one from Pete is, what is your status on getting swole? <laughs> the second one from Greg Young is, have you recanted, do you still defend McDonald's? Or are you still intellectually maturing? And then the third one is, do you give? Do you recommend giving up sugar for weight loss? And does it only work if you give up alcohol? All of these are connected. They are all connected. Um, so let's start with the obvious one, Get which swole. is how much McDonald's are you eating these days? Okay. I actually, no, I'm going to save McDonald's. A, I am eating. I had an egg white delight like two days ago. Egg white delight? Uh, yes. Is are, that a thing? They are a delight. But anyway, I'm going to come to McDonald's last, okay? <laughs> I'm going to start with getting swole. So <laughs> this, for for really attentive listeners, I definitely, I at some point- There was I, a resolution. There, we all talked about New Year's resolution, and I said my resolution was to get swole, which meant like putting on some just not like tiny bit amount of muscle, because I, I built like a, you know, pile of pizza dough or something. Um, so- I that never really happened. I did not get swole. I no wait. Wasn't your grandfather a boxer? My grandfather was. My grandfather was very much a boxer. His name was Nady Nady the New Deal Brown. He fought Joe Lewis twice. Got his ass kicked both times. Uh, though he claims he took a fall the second. I or he claimed. I I, I doubt that was true. Um, although he was. He also was mixed up in the mob. He went to jail for a. a being an uh, assisting in a bank robbery at one point, so I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he took the fall. Um, but so you'd think genetically, I'd have some ability to put on muscle, but I still haven't unlocked it. If that's true, what I did do? Did you try lifting weights? I have, but so what I did instead was I lost about twenty five pounds. So that is the where I, did you leave? What you just like woke up one morning and said, "I can't find my twenty five pounds." Are they down the back of the sofa? I I it was some no. It's been like a. About nine months of fairly hard work, but so I'm going to try to put this in in economic terms, but also uh, uh, while also talking about alcohol and talking about McDonald's. So um, let's start with like three things I think I've I've basically done. Number one is I used to have a morning bacon, egg and cheese habit, um, which was I think. Yeah. (laughs) Shockingly. Felix (laughs) is giving me this look. I'm I'm all in favor of a morning bacon, egg and cheese. I, I, I. thoroughly approved. It turns out if you stop eating bacon, eggs, and cheese on a regular basis, it's easy to take off some weight. One of the things I've replaced that with is uh, like the McDonald's Egg White Delight, which is about 290 calories and is a perfect breakfast food. So I'm going to point out that I think that's more about portion control than it is about the bacon, egg, and cheese. So wait, wait, what? first of all, because I am a ignorant man who never goes to McDonald's, what is an Egg White Delight? It is, you know, an Egg McMuffin? Vaguely. Okay. Well, okay. An egg McMuffin is like one of the great national dishes of the United States of America. Um, but it's just like, you know. Egg- so wait, you're doing that only with egg whites? So the egg white delight is a egg McMuffin. So it's, you know, a little Canadian bacon, an English muffin and eggs, but it's just the egg whites. So it's like a little and cheese and a little. I'm going to not so, endorse so wait, that. So wait, <laughs> yeah. it is 
a bacon, egg, and cheese. It just doesn't have egg yolks. Yeah, but well, it's yeah, but it's two hundred ninety calories as opposed to the uh, you know convenience store special in Manhattan, which is just this sloppy monster, delicious, gooey thing. But, but it's also probably much larger. Whereas the one thing yes. that McDonald's does is that they Small. exactly well, it's standardized, e- and so standardization. That's exactly. exactly what it is because. Actually, the yolks are not bad for you. I'm going to push back on it. Actually, are much more nutritious than just yeah, egg but whites. But I'm a big fan of egg yolks. Not the way they cook them at McDonald's, though. So a lot of the a lot of these fast food restaurants have made this horrible mistake, in my opinion, where to kind of latch on, including the, McDonald's. Yeah, are, so, you, are you going to hate on? McDonald's yeah, so here? they've all latched onto like the kind of freshness trend, like it needs to be wholesome, and so they've started cooking whole eggs. And they just sort of boil them until they're hardened in mm-hmm. the yolk. And so you just get this ugly, gritty, not very good yolk in the middle of your McMuffin. And so that's, <laughs> um, you're better off, in my opinion, with just getting the egg whites because it's just, you don't want an improperly cooked whole egg. It's not good. You get a rubbery white and a, can and a I, chalky yolk. Can I just jump in here to give Are you going to plug your sous vide machine right now? Right. My, my, <laughs> my absolutely foolproof hard-boiled egg recipe yeah. for the best hard-boiled eggs you've ever had. Mm-hmm. Cook them at 183 degrees for 10 minutes. Take them out of the water, put them into the egg carton, and just let them slowly cool down to room temperature in the egg carton. And then once they've done that, it's perfect. The whites are solidified, but not rubbery. The yolks are, I like to say it's the texture of Marmite. They, they've got a nice little texture to them. <laughs> It, they're, they're beautiful. Oh, man. A reference all of our American audiences. You know, we've got enough international listeners that I, I doubt that went over too many people's heads. Um, but, okay, so that's so sta- eat, kind of switching to a more standardized breakfast. I'll say the Egg White Delight is not my everyday. Actually, I eat a lot of yogurt. I, I have like a one cup of fache yogurt. Uh, is it sweetened or unsweetened? I add a table or a teaspoon of honey and uh, half a handful of almonds, which is about twenty almonds. So a lot of it is about standardization. Oh my god, you're doing the whole like Barack Obama counting <laughs> your almonds, almonds thing. Well, I, I know roughly what fits into the palm of my left hand, but it's I, when I count it out, it's about twenty twenty five. Anyway, so that's part one. Uh, part two uh, was um, I can actually sort of thank Felix for this. I think, um, which is I used to be very much a beer drinker as a beer guy. We've had you all know there was the beer episode, um, but. Around, I, I think after the the Bianca Bosker cork dork episode, <laughs> I finally decided I was going to fucking learn about wine. It was just going to happen. Um, and that had a really helpful side effect, which is um, at first I thought I was just going to end up drinking more. But it turned out, actually, I just replaced most of my beer consumption with wine consumption. And wine is dry, right? Like there is just less carbs, less sugar in it for the most part because it gets turned into alcohol. And so that actually ended up being, you know, you, when you read like these, you know, diet guru books or whatever, they say, oh, alcohol is like the devil. I think you can make a lot of progress if you just switch from like, you know, your Budweiser or your like, yeah, I mean, you know, your your Belgian triple or whatever the heck I was drinking to, beer, you know, a, a the lo- wine substitution. Diet. Yeah, to a no, lovely it, it works. Beer is liquid yeah. bread and wine is liquid grapes. And yeah. intuitively, bread is more fattening than grapes are. Yes. And, you know, especially if you're into um, slightly lower alcohol, like reds or or whites you know if you i've been drinking a lot of pinot recently in like the 12 percent range so that's cutting alcohol calories as well um so i guess it's a i guess part two it's like the michael uh pollen formulation maybe or a paraphrase like drink wine mo- not too much mostly pinot <laughs> uh that's part and then part three is about commitment devices um which is i just joined a stupidly expensive gym 
Uh, I, I am now a bad bitch up in Equinox, as Kanye might put it. Um, and while it hurts me every time I, I look at my credit card statement, uh, it has shamed me into going to the gym regularly. Wait, and, so if you go to the gym regularly, does that not make you swole? Uh, it, I do a lot of cardio and Pilates. Um, Pilates? Uh, Pilates. Well, I have, a, I have my bum back, and so that's at, it's wonderful for your core. They have good Pilates classes at that Equinox. They do. <laughs> so. I have my favorites. Thanks, Dara. Um, anyway, but... And does Pilates help you lose weight? Uh, not really. Uh, it does help with, but again, if you're on, if you're hunched over a bike a lot, um, which I am, it's good to you then. You biking a lot? Is that uh, uh, no, I'm like do? on a spin machine kind of thing. Uh, so if you're hunched over a lot, it's good to then do a lot of stretching and work yeah, on your and, back and, and core. exercise doesn't really make you lose weight. Exercise is good for other things in terms I, of overall. So I really. There's some. There's, I mean, it depends on how much you limited. do. It's very limited. I mean, if you do a, a if, if you're on a bike for 45 minutes to an hour on, a, you know, three times a week, that's going to help you some, right? Like just the sheer amount of calories. You're, it's not going to do it alone, but it's going to help. It's, you also have to switch from beer to wine. Right. But it's far less than people think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, I'm not, I'm, I love exercise. It's great for me. Okay. So now, so, so so now to is, get back to McDonald's. So that's, okay. So to get back to McDonald's. Um, so for, listen, for listeners who've been with us a while, uh, Kathy Felix and I had an episode where we each had for Thanksgiving, where we each had to talk about one company that we were thankful for. Uh, and Felix, what did you pick again? Do you remember? I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember what Kathy picked. I picked McDonald's, Such and this became and this became a two episode argument. I I think it it was I it was like I'd set off a bomb in the middle of sleep <laughs> money, and you know my argument boiled down to the fact that McDonald's had sort of brought a certain standardization of what the baseline quality of food in America should be when you're on the road, when you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and well, even of, when you're in Brooklyn, apparently, oh, you have an egg white delight. Yeah, and it's sort of, it, it, exactly. And so it, it said sort of, um, you know, in some places, it, it also just kind of guaranteed a nice, clean base where people could meet, you know, like, which is actually important to having uh, communities when you're in these far suburbs and exurbs um, that I was sort of, they, they had also sort of figured out the franchise model, which was an important development in, in American capitalism, even though they weren't necessarily the first to franchise anything. Jordan, you're, um, you're just repeating yourself. Yeah, we, but we so had now, a whole episode. Well, so now here's, I, I, I've thought about this question because I saw it ahead of time. And I guess part of the, the issue is, can you be... Th- thankful for mcdonald's if you also know that it's contributed to things like global warming because of it's how it's kind of helped increase american beef consumption and factory farming and can you really be thankful for it if you know that the franchise model um that it played such an important role in uh in popularizing also has been probably horrible for workers it's made it a lot harder to unionize because you're not part of one big company um and so the question is is McDonald's responsible for these aspects of American capitalism or would it have happened anyway without McDonald's? Um, and is it were they just the ones to sort of carry it out? And so can you appreciate the good things and just blame the rest on the logic of, you know, capitalism itself and kind of separate the two? Or is it all just so interta- intertwined that McDonald's is capitalism? Um, I think maybe that's the answer. And so maybe I should have more mixed feelings because can you really say you're thankful for McDonald's in a sort of un- um, unqualified way without saying you're thankful for capitalism in an unqualified way. I don't know. So I, I actually, I don't, I don't recant. I'm going to complicate my answer, but I'm not going to recant fully because I still like their breakfast. Uh, I'm not even going to fight back on that one because 
Um, I actually kind of agree with you. Thank you. I I, I actually think McDonald's the history is of McDonald's. There are some positive things, yeah. and I yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, well, also like, with that, here, I, I do not even need to respond because all of my responses are in prior episodes, and well, we have covered this. So already. I do also one quick thing. Yeah. I will say, as a child of like the '90s, who I had three sisters, and when you were a little kid. My parents took us to McDonald's quite frequently, and a lot of parents did, and our health was perfectly fine. And for parents, it was an inexpensive, easy way to sometimes feed their children when both parents were working long hours. And I think there was a benefit to that. Yeah. I also do. I do sort of wonder if McDonald's hadn't come along, if actually you would have had something like Chipotle earlier, because in a lot of regions of America, that sort of, uh, you know, steam tray, lunch tray approach was was normal you you know in the deep south you have the meat and threes and such and you know obviously you had howard johnson's and sit down places that were taking over the american roadside but i do wonder if maybe you know fast casual actually would have um been would have would have conquered america if although fast casual doesn't work as well for cars and that's yeah. what it boils down to right and, and i think that's a big part of it too. The, the story of mcdonald's is, is also story the story of, of the cars new, yeah and can you can you be thankful for mcdonald's if you're if you have mixed feelings about american yeah. transportation and habits? i hate cars so, <laughs> so yeah okay anyway moving i'm just on. confused moving on to the next question let's yes let's move on <laughs> to the next question also felix this uh utah wine is lovely i've shot <laughs> like i still wish i hadn't broken the cork on the thousand year old lebanese wine or whatever but this is good um so okay This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies all lined up and ready to compare. So it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's let's move on to housing. Yeah. We have Rob in Toronto asking whether housing speculation is a good thing, whether it should be regulated. Should we stop people trying to flip houses to buy houses just because they think they're going to go up in value? Do, should we stop thinking of housing as an asset class? And related to this, the question which I wanted to ask a couple of weeks ago, but didn't, yeah. what do you make of this factoid, which has now been circulating for a while, and I think might even be true, that 35% of millennials don't even look at their house before they buy it. I just, I don't believe it, but like, uh, I'm going to treat that factoid as true, right, just for the sake of argument. So, uh, should, which part should we talk about first? The, the I, mean, I think it's related, right? Um, that So you think money, many millennials are just speculating that 35% of them are just deploying capital? I don't think so. That seems unlikely yeah. to me. That's a really high percentage. Yeah, and I still wonder. I, I, but I think the, the part of the logic there is that if what you're doing is buying some kind of an asset, yeah. then the 
market and the housing is your your house is going to go up or not go up in value more or less regardless of what it looks like yeah and so you don't need to care about what it looks like but if you're thinking about it as an asset rather than if you're thinking about it as a place where you want to live so i'm going to assume because i don't trust this survey entirely but i'm going to assume that there that what it shows is that there are at least a few millennials out there who bought a house to live in without seeing it that they just decided the internet was enough and so it's not even necessarily that they are thinking of it entirely as an asset although they might be saying okay this is my starter home so it's only going to be a few years um i think this just like gets to sort of a general absurdity about the way we buy houses in this country or just the fact or really about home ownership in general um when felix says we've talked a lot off air about uh my adventures in brooklyn real estate it's because i bought a co-op a while ago and then i spent about a year um with a hole in my bathroom ceiling that water would shower down on me from thanks to my upstairs neighbors there was litigation involved anyway <laughs> it's a long long colorful rant my ceiling has finally been fixed everything seems to be fine but um the fact is like we don't you don't really get for the most part get to look at your home before or you don't get you don't get to test drive your house you get to test drive a car but you get to basically visit your house a couple of times before you make an offer at most and then maybe do one last walk through to make sure after an inspection to make sure that everything essentially is in working order but you do you don't get to like stay there overnight usually to make sure that oh the neighbors upstairs aren't making an unholy racket regularly or that your downstairs neighbors doesn't like you know blast the rolling stones at some unholy volume anyway but you just these are things that you would think with a long-term purchase you'd get to do but you do not and so i wonder if there's just like some if there are just some millennials who are thinking well what am i really actually going to get out of even visiting i've heard some people i've talked about this with some people and they've said they've started um airbnb places for like one or two nights in order to test them out that's actually kind of smart yeah which i think is interesting um and maybe that i I don't know how widespread that would ever become but in a housing market where you don't have where people aren't just kind of racing to outbid each other like in brooklyn or or, you know manhattan although manhattan's kind of calming down but i could see that actually becoming a little bit more widespread that maybe that could become a standard part of the process that would actually be very nice i think um so i i you know if some millennials are just buying you know real estate sight unseen to live in because they think they're going to live in it for like three four years at most and then move on like they would a rental i don't know it's sort of i think it's sort of acknowledging the absurdity of the whole the whole <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i actually know a number of people who have bought sight unseen and it's often been because they had a relative or someone in the area who went and saw it before them yeah and i do think what you said is really important is that i know like when i bought my apartment and before i made the offer i think i saw my apartment for like 15 minutes yeah because in new york you have to make offers really quickly or you're not going to get the place Within so 15 minutes no i but i probably only spent about 15 minutes in the apartment and then there are only so many times you can walk around 800 square feet yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah. it's like okay i've done the circuit again kitchen looks the same right it's more <laughs> like okay and then and also we do have a process of inspections to and that's how the real estate market has always worked i think it's less weird than it sounds also it's only sight unseen before you make a bid it doesn't mean that before the actual process is completely done and signed you haven't seen it yeah that's true before you I, you may have put up like a security to, you know or right. something but um but okay so should let, let's get to housing speculation now so okay so the, do you consider yeah. your co-op to be an asset 
Yeah, I consider it an asset. I consider it a savings vehicle. I don't necessarily consider it like, I mean, yeah, it's an asset. It's a thing that I own that I could sell and, you know, for money. <laughs> like that's, like, and, it's not, and it's not depreciating. It's not like a car where every mile I drive on it, every minute I live in it doesn't make the thing less valuable. So, I, But you do yeah. worry. I mean, like one yeah. of the things that one of the sort of running themes that we had during the whole tax reform years or yeah. it felt like years anyway um was your worry that the value of your co-op would decline were this tax reform to go through and it seemed at least at the time to me to be that you felt that a decline in the value of your co-op would be a bad thing yeah well for i think for most middle class families that treat their real estate as, as their main savings vehicle that's yeah, that is their asset. I mean, that's just that's the reality. It's a question. There's there are two separate questions. Should it be an asset, and you know, should should houses be assets, and are they assets? Yes. Should they be? Why wouldn't they be? Yeah. I, I mean, like, like if you engineer Germany, you don't have to worry so much about it. If everyone's a renter, then yeah, people find other ways to save. But in the U.S., you know, home equity's it. That's that's where the middle class puts their money, and. Um, so that is one of the things I really did worry about with tax reform, and we'll see how it plays out, whether or not uh, people in sort of the, let's say, middle 60% would end up seeing some of their savings disappear for a tax cut that wouldn't pay off for a very, very long time um, compared to the amount of, that they would lose off their homes. Um, you know, for – but I, I guess coming back to the speculation thing, right? So I, I, I think I see where you're going, whereas if you think of housing as an asset – then speculation should be fine because speculation is really just a way of doing price discovery in a functioning market. Um, and that's why you know, when you hear about like oil, people blaming oil speculators for prices going up, it's like, well, also speculators manage it's to bring oil prices yeah. down. Yeah, exactly. It's just how you actually get. Safe. You have speculators and hedgers. That's that's, that's how, how markets, markets right. function. Um, so should you if housing is an asset, should you allow speculators? I think the problem is that it's housing isn't necessarily a functional market all the time because you can't like you know supply doesn't necessarily go up as more speculators go in there you might be constrained by zoning you know rules and whatnot and this question came to us from someone in toronto where they just have tons and tons of chinese money (laughs) flowing in so less now less less now yeah but they do have inflows of people even if they're not chinese yes and, and they can't build fast enough to um to Accommodate all those people, and you do have a sort of systemic demand outpacing supply problem in Toronto, and that has made not only property prices extremely high in Toronto, but it has also broken the market in a weird way to the point at which it becomes actually very, very difficult to buy anything at all. Yeah, and th- this is, you know, I think the the big question here in the end is with something like housing that is socially essential, right? That you have to have people people need to be able to live in a city um should it just be completely dictated by the rules of the market right should there should should it be treated just like any other asset and you can come back to this with healthcare right should healthcare just run by market rules um and you know i i think the answer is no not entirely you need to have you can't treat it as a pure asset the way you like would a a bond or a stock and you 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 have to you 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 have to regulate and figure out how you're going to make it possible for middle class and lower income people to survive yeah, and younger people. I think this is yeah. an issue is that we want to encourage people who are in parts of the country that are more 
economically depressed to be able to move to parts of the country where they have more opportunities. But the problem is housing is so expensive in those areas that we are potentially decreasing our amount of human capital in the country or decreasing the value of that human capital because of some of our housing policies. So I I guess I'd I'd finish with this. Should housing be an asset for your typical family? Probably not. We'd be better off if it wasn't. Unfortunately, that's where we are and probably always will be in America. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. And finally, um, because this is the guide to the business and finance news of the week, mm-hmm. let's talk about your former classmate, Mr. Martin Shkreli. I did not go, I was not his classmate. He was several years above me. He did date someone in my grade briefly. Um, um, but <laughs> He just got sentenced to seven years in prison. He did. Um And also this week, Elizabeth Holmes got dinged by the SEC and had to hand back half a million dollars and promise not to be a director of a public company in the next 10 years. And short, long story, long story short, didn't go to prison at all. No. And very unlikely to. I don't know if it's 100%. It's not 100%. It's still outstanding. It's it's still improbable. And I agree with that. The. Fact is that her fraud was seven hundred million dollars, and Scrub. that's the amount of money that she basically fraudulently obtained from investors, which they will never see back. Compared to the size of Shkreli's fraud, which, to a first approximation, was zero. Like his investors did get their money back. So, they did. is there some weird? What's going on here? <laughs> um. You know, I think what you're seeing is politics and um, publicity play a role in prosecutions, right? Well, like, that's like uh, 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 that's that's the bottom line. But um, there are a lot of things about the Shkreli case that make me a little bit sad. Um, and I wrote about them last week. Uh, you know, the the big thing before getting to Elizabeth Holmes and that comparison is just that it, I think symbolically it left a very sour taste in my mouth because in the end he is going to jail for essentially essentially lying to investors in his first couple of hedge funds about um, his prior performance and and what the hedge funds were and um, and then taking, running a Ponzi scheme yes. for a while. <laughs> There's that. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he it was small time Wall Street crimes. Right. This was not this was not huge stuff. It was it was they were pretty obviously crimes, but it was not um, it's kind of thing probably happens all the time and just never we never hear about. Um, and Eventually, he managed to pay them back because he finally got into the business of buying old drugs and hiking their prices radically and then just earning lots of profits off that. And he managed to funnel cash back to the the people who had uh, staked him before through what prosecutors said were these sham uh, consulting contracts. Um, what's funny is that he didn't even get convicted on the sham consulting part, even though the company, his, his drug company was supposedly the victim here. Um or one of the victims here, there was some stock scam too that was involved in all this. It was sort of nebulous, but, uh, you know, in the end, he got convicted for screwing some investors, sort of, 
um, and was not nothing he got in trouble for had anything to do with screwing patients or screwing the medical system or what everyone was actually angry about him for. And I just thought that really kind of spoke to um, the values are, are that are embedded in our legal system. Wait, wait, hang on a second. Are you saying that he should have in in like a better society we would put people in jail for hiking drug prices? No, that like there's no. I'm not saying in a better society we would actually put him in jail for it necessarily. Um, but that is, we think it's ascent, what he did is okay in the end, right? The right. drug like that is people will continue to do that like just that that is our legal system as is built our regulatory and legal system it's all kind of of a piece says okay yeah you can you can corner the market on a drug like that's what we have designed as society um however we have made sure that you do not screw with investors if you get caught doing that you will go to jail and i'm not saying necessarily isn't elizabeth holmes a a con, you know, a data point if you really screw investors to the tune of 700 million dollars then you don't go to jail? I kind of disagree. I, just uh, so, in the sense of I well, like I don't think the difference between their sentencing is unfair. I actually think it makes sense. I think it makes sense both because partly I actually think Shkreli is going to prison for raising the drug prices. In well, reality, I think, I think that attra- that's in what terms attracted of, attention to his case. Well, and that's also possibly. obviously affected sentencing. Yeah. And I also think Shkreli is someone who is a repeat offender. He has been essentially running a con after a con after a con. He has also, when he was going through his trial... He ran three cons, really. And oh, yes. that's con after con. con. That's, okay, yeah, yes. okay, got three. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and when he was going through his trial, he was extremely... Um, he was a dick. He was, yeah. Yeah, but and, that's because Shkreli's a dick. No, but I think that that's important because he, you know, he did that weird thing saying that he would give a, you know, a five hundred or five thousand dollar bounty for a piece of Hillary Clinton's hair. He was showing that if this guy doesn't go to jail, he's not reforming in any way. He enjoys the infamy, and that is completely different with Elizabeth Holmes. I think that she should be punished for what she did, but the intent was completely different in these two situations. Also, what do you think? Her I, yeah, wait, was? Well, yeah, it was her intent was to make a lot of money. I think. Well, like, I think <laughs> her intent was clearly, and I'm not trying to defend Elizabeth Holmes because I, but she clearly believed that, and was probably somewhat delusional to believe that she could actually create this product. They thought that they would get there and that they were just buying time, which is still wrong. You are not allowed to do that. But I think that is different than Shkreli, who clearly was just trying to get rich and screw people. Okay, so there's this Paul Kodrowski defense of Theranos, and he thinks that the punishment for Elizabeth Holmes is too big, and she shouldn't be punished even this much. I I missed that. What was the... Um, And his defense is basically, this is what all startups do. They all lie about their revenues. They They all take a fake it till you make it approach. And if you criminalize that, then that's the end of all tech startups. Oops. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I, I think that the problem with the model. I agree. I mean, I think she is a victim of this Silicon Valley narrative. However, it's one thing when you're talking about this narrative with people who are like having a startup to, for, I don't know, delivering groceries or something. But if you have a startup that's related to testing of people's blood related to illnesses, that's getting a little bit more serious. Yeah, and and yeah, there were human beings who were seriously harmed by Theranos. They went into Walgreens, they did blood tests, they got results which were very bad results and they wound up having to go through procedures which they didn't need and all of this kind of stuff as a result of those blood tests. You don't give people blood test results when you don't know that that's the actual truth. Yeah. I I mean, there's so many issues that that, that 
that this case raises. I, I was I was reading through the SEC's complaint and just thinking about the fact that she tricked Walgreens the way she did was sort of. I mean, yeah. it, it it tells you like they weren't able to do due, due diligence on this that they fell for the scam. Just I feel like that hasn't gotten enough attention. That right, <laughs> like the biggest the country's top pharmacy chain just sort of listened to this and believed her. But um, you know, and another thing is just you know. Again, she's someone who got in trouble for screwing investors and is technically not getting in trouble for screwing patients. But in some ways, we rely on our securities laws as sort of a catch-all for corporate wrongdoing, that if you lie to people in general, and no matter what you're lying to, as long as you also lied to investors, then they can kind of get you for for that too, right? Like, you know, is, so, this, but like, so this is actually yeah. a response. This is, I mean, I kind of like this yeah. as a... Uh, a sort of umbrella explanation of everything. Yeah, uh, it answers Paul Kudrowski as well. Like, it, you, what you do is you say Martin Shkreli is a dick who needs to go to jail. Um, Elizabeth Holmes is a Silicon Valley founder who went way too far in terms of the lies that she told, and you know your random startup bro in Palo Alto with a app which fails is you know also theoretically guilty of defrauding investors but we don't see any real harm in the startup row with an app so we don't prosecute that person at all we do see a certain amount of real harm in the theranos case in terms of people going into walgreens and getting bad results back and so we do punish theranos for and elizabeth holmes for her sins and we use the securities laws as a pretext. And when Martin Shkreli comes along and is just like cocking a snook at the entire country, we throw him away for seven years. Um, again, we'll use the securities laws as an excuse, but it, that's not really what he's being jailed he, for. Yeah, but what makes me uncomfortable with that is that in the end, the reason we were the reason Martin Shkreli was able to cock a snook at the entire country was for something he did. For, it was for an you know an honest scam. Right. He didn't lie about what he was doing with Daraprim or any of the other drugs he, he pulled this with. He it was totally on the table. He defended that on CNBC. Um, and that's a separate issue yeah. about whether or not we should have certain regulations on the drug. Ex- exactly. And so, you know, in a way, you just have to get lucky with Shkreli that aside from being a dick, he was also a liar um, or at also least... not really that surprising. You often find that yeah. when people have these really, really awful business models they tend to be a little bit creative in their accounting too yeah i just i i guess i'm uncomfortable with the idea of relying on security like securities laws are sort of a catch-all i'm sort of uncomfortable with that as well and as far as holmes goes i i am surprised actually that she's not hasn't been prosecuted i mean the her lies were on the same as far as screwing investors go her lies were definitely on the same magnitude as Shkreli's. like they just they were and, or, like the and the, and the like, losses were much, much greater yeah the losses were much much larger the severity of lies were arguably were were much was much much greater i if she does not get prosecuted i i'm going to be left with the feeling that yeah there's just you know she's a she has powerful friends still and that's what's somehow protecting her even though i don't know what connections they have to washington i don't understand well, why so what, but, but what what good is served by her going to prison but what good was served by Martha Stewart going to prison? I completely agree with you. I actually don't think Martin Shkreli should go to prison for seven years. I think that we have a ridiculous system in this country where we put too many people in prison and we put them in prison for too long. But I'm, but but yeah, I think Elizabeth Holmes is at this point like her, you know, her company's value is gone, which was all the money she essentially had. And she is not probably going to be able to start a company even 
post 10 years because who's going to invest in her company? Oh, I wouldn't put it past. It's it. okay. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's like, possible. But I think that she has she's being punished pretty harshly. I don't really understand why going to prison is really going to do much more. Whereas with Shkreli, he seemed to enjoy like going through this process of, you know, going to court every day. I, it, I think it makes sense for him to go to prison for a short period of time in a way that I don't think it makes that much sense for her. No, <laughs> no, you could disagree with me. And it's fine. It's just that I, I, it goes into the idea of like, why do we send people to prison? What is the point of sending people to prison? If it's the point to stop other people from committing the crime, to punish people, to I think a, a, rehabilitate a, a for reduce recidivism. I, I'm not all for Old Testament style justice all the time, uh, but a modicum of it is sometimes good. And I will add that my sort of big theory of white collar crime is that it's prosecuted so rarely that when you do find someone guilty, they really should go to prison because otherwise it's no deterrent at all. Given that your chances of getting prosecuted is so low, you need a pretty high chance of going yeah. to prison in order to have any kind of deterrent effect yeah. there. And I, I just want to add for you know the sake of not libeling anyone. We do not know for sure that Elizabeth right. Holmes has, you know, she's not been charged with a crime. We do not know if she'd be convicted with a crime. We do not know. And what, she has not actually the, admitted yeah. that she's done it. Yeah, exactly. That was all, you know, she that she did not admit fault as part of the settlement. So, Elizabeth, we're not libeling you. We no. just think you should be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's finish this off with Jordan's final number. Uh, well, I had one about trade. But no, I think uh, my final number is going to be uh, four, which is the number of pours of wine I've had over the course of this episode. <laughs> Felix, I, 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 I still would like to try the Lebanon wine, but I will say the, the Colt Utah uh, Grenache, white Grenache is lovely. And I will probably be taking a picture of this bottle to go get myself one at some point later on. Do, like, they, do they have this at Aster Wines or they, something? They, Where they, can you, I get that? You can get that at Chambers. I can get that at Chambers? Okay, I'm going to go find that one. Hang out here on this podcast, if you're a Slate Plus listener, um, to listen to the Jordan, Felix, and Anna review of The Low Road at the Public Theater. Thank you to everyone who came out to say hi to Jordan, to buy him a drink um, on Pi Day. On it was Pi a day. fun Pi Day. And on Slate Plus, we will talk about the play. If you're not a Slate Plus member, become a member you can do that at slate.com slash plus or go listen to spoiler specials instead which is also a dan schrader production it comes out every other week on friday mornings and it's hosted by a rotating cast of critics who all have one thing in common which is that not only have they seen the films but they are going to talk in detail about all of those spoilers which the reviews don't mention because they're spoilers. So once you know that he was dead all along, then you can listen to spoiler <laughs> specials. Um, other than that, keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Um, do suggest other guests that we can have. We need. We have an empty chair here now which needs filling. So give us some ideas for people who should sit in it. And we will talk to you next week on Slate. Money.
Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.